Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. And this is our next podcast on our journey through the life course. Each month, one podcast will be dedicated to the human journey through the social work lens from pre-birth to end of life. Uh, we last looked at older age. And so today is our last podcast in this journey. And we're looking at end of life. Thank you so much to people who've been listening to us, uh, whether that's on iTunes or on Spotify or from our um, website. We have now got more than 50,000 downloads. Which is crazy, really. It's amazing, isn't it? Over <laughs> it is. 80 episodes. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, and there's a few places that, in the UK that we've only got one download. Oh. So, odds, <laughs> I'm not quite sure where that is. Carrick Fergus, which is in Northern Ireland, Moyle, Ballymoney, Blanau Gwent, Dungannon, Midlothian, and Newey and Morn. So, I don't know whether it was, you know, maybe my mum went to those places and listened to it <laughs> while she was there, but it would be great if you live in any of those places. Thank you for listening. And let's get some people from some of those far-flung places to listen. And um, and the people of the one, have another go. You never know. We, we might, you know, say something interesting in one of the other podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And we're, I, we're worth sticking with, aren't we, Jerry? I hope so. I hope <laughs> yeah. so. And I've got particular thanks this month to Claire Johnson, who left a really nice uh, message on our Facebook page to say, I want to say how amazing and insightful your podcasts, podcasts are. I'm a student social worker at Chichester University, West Sussex, and I promote your work to peers and listen to one or two on my hour journey in and home again. They really challenge me. Um, keep up the good work. You're both amazing, inspiring wow. others to think a little harder and to empower others as well. Thanks, Claire. Yeah. And we've had some reviews on iTunes. I'm sorry, I haven't been checking in there much, but we're getting really nice reviews on there. So thank you very much, um, particularly to Ruth J, who left a really nice review saying that they were thought provoking discussions and Fluffy Socks, which is a great name, uh, saying she shared it with her team and we'll use it to discuss practice in the next team meeting. Fantastic. Well, that's just lovely, isn't it? And you can tell us what you think. You can, you can get in touch by visiting our website, which is www.helpfulsocialwork.com or by commenting on iTunes, as you are, or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And we really do want to hear from you um, because we love doing this and, and we'd love to make it as helpful and as interesting as we possibly could. And we're working on our second book. So we the first are. one's on the website and we are working on the second one, which is going to be the one about the uh, social work journey from first contact through to closure or transfer of cases. Fantastic. Okay, so this is our, our next episode looking at the human journey through the social work lens. It's thinking about how we grow and evolve and what this means for social workers who are alongside on the journey. And today, Jerry is another tough one. They've, they've been a bit tough lately, I've found, perhaps because it's moving into my own age group um, and then beyond it. Uh, today is end of life. Yeah, so we're going to talk about end, um, the definition of end. So it can be the extremity of something that has length, um, the outside or extreme edge or physical limit, point in time when something ceases or is completed, a result or an outcome a goal or mm -hmm. the termination of life or existence, death. So it also kind of gives the idea of the ultimate, the final the kind of limit. So there's something quite wonderful about it, actually, in a way. 
something sort of mysterious and magical. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking quite a lot um, about a resource. So I'm going to be referring to a resource quite a lot that I was involved in writing, which is called The Role of Social Workers in Palliative End of Life and Bereavement Care, which was created by the Association of Palliative Care Social Workers, along with former College of Social Work and support from the British Association of Social Workers and Hospice UK, but also crucially co-produced with Making Waves Lived Experience Network, Open Futures Research, which is a group of people with lived experience of social care and social work. Um, and it's full of stories about palliative care, but also mm. sets out what it is. And that has a definition which says that palliative care social work is um, people who specialise, social workers specialising in working with adults and children who are at the end of their life and their families and those they're close to in their communities and using particular skills and knowledge to help people to deal with the impact of what's happening to them including loss and bereavement, and to have a good life and a good death. And palliative care social workers work with, in partnership with people, work alongside other professions and work in all kinds of different settings. And there's a really wonderful quote, um, there's quotes throughout the resource, but there's a really wonderful quote about um, what good social work looks like. And this is, I think the most important support is time, the giving of time, people finding time for you and the freedom to ask questions having someone independent to go to just to talk through and to say, I'm upset, I'm confused, and just to gain reassurance. So that's, so I'm going to be coming from talking about um, what's in that resource quite a lot, but I just wanted to kind of mm. um, give you a chance, Joe, to say what you, what end of life and social work and end of life means from your point of view. Sure. Well, actually, um, for me, I, I think about it, I guess, more from experience um, as a young worker. My first role was really in the disability field, working with children. Um, it's very hard to work with parents who have lost or who are going to lose their child to a life-limiting condition. Um, and I can certainly remember going to quite a few funerals with tiny little white coffins, which is actually quite a hard thing to do when you're young um, but I learned really that it's a gift I agree with with the quote that you just read out because it's a gift to be able to sit beside someone and be a witness to their pain and grief without trying to stop it or fix it or intervene in any way because some things are simply unfixable except by kindness time and courage and so it was a really interesting period of, of my work life for me because I'm a bit of a doer and so I like to think that I can fix things and to learn that to sit still and to listen and to give someone permission to speak about their fears of dying or their fears of loss or to listen to stories from another about a beloved person who has died, I had to learn that that was doing something. Um, and that it was valuable. So, so you know, that quote that, that really resonates with me. And, and I'm really glad that I did learn that because it stood me well in my own life because obviously, you know, the older you get, the more experience you have of loss. Um, and for me, one of the things that's, that has helped me is you, you get that understanding of being able to survive after the unthinkable. Um, and I think lastly, 
we always live with the threat of our own and others' mortality. We, we always have that in our, in our life. But um, social workers can sometimes be in the space between people's grief and the reality of life going on. And and then that then that makes me always think about that poem, you know, by W. H. Auden, where he talks about, you know, stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone. Um, you know, that's the kind of it's sense in four weddings of, and a funeral. That's where I heard it. It, it <laughs> is, which is it a is. less cultural thing. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know, you know, it's it beautiful says, enough. yeah, he was my north, my south, my east, my west, my working week, and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. And then he talks about the desire to make the world stop. And I think that's one of the really hard things when you're going through that loss is actually there's many things that keep going. And as a social worker, we can be really helpful. This is what I learned from parents who were um, trying to manage the dying or the death of their children. There are many practical things social workers can do to help with the relentless demands of the world that goes on. Yeah. While That's also trying... something that came out really strongly in um, some work that Baz was done with um, on social work after disasters. So we've been supported in doing that by survivors of various um, crises and particularly Hillsborough, which was a um, oh. tragedy in, in England um, where a lot of football supporters were, were killed at a match a few decades ago now. And one of the family uh, members said that having a social worker come initially they weren't really welcome but once they um, understood that the social worker could be there and help them navigate things mm. and and help them weave through things that they had to um, like yeah. you say about managing the the kind of ongoing demands and I think end of life social work is completely bound up with bereavement support um, mm. And it's both really therapeutic and really practical work that happens. Yes, I think that's right. It's that learning to sit with the pain, but it's also learning to look for the opportunity to serve almost um, in that very practical way. Like I said, for me, it's like being a bit of a buffer. Yeah. So I, I did want to go to the, the evidence a little bit and think about actually, well, when do people's lives end? Um, and I looked at the Office for National Statistics data for the United Kingdom, and most people do live long lives. Um, and generally, premature death is, is considered to be people under 75. And those mm. numbers have been falling for some time, generally, generally over, over a period of time, generally been going down. Um, so there is, um, you're more likely to die younger in some groups. So, for example, people who have um, severe and enduring mental health problems um, and people who are addicted to drugs. Uh, mm. So drug misuse deaths have risen sharply in recent years. And that's I think that's a kind of global phenomenon, but certainly the case in the United Kingdom, particularly in Scotland, actually. Um, children generally don't die, but some some do. Um, so in 2012, which is the last time we've got, I've got good research, which is from the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. And in 2012, around 3,000 um, children died before the age of one and around 2,000 between the ages of one and 19. Um, so in the, in the uh, very early childhood, it's linked to um, problems at birth and um, risk factors around uh, environment and um, 
kind of uh, nutrition and things like that um and then as when you're a little bit older it's it's more like to be injury or suicide actually in some cases but we're still talking very very small number numbers and then there will be people who, who live you know young people who live with very complex conditions um but the other thing i wanted to mention from the evidence is something that's kind of um, just come out the the marmot review of health equity in england mm. so this is a review of, of the last 10 years following on from a review in 2010 and what it said is that um, there's a slowdown in life expectancy increase in this country. Yes. Um, and that's greatest. The slowdown is greatest in the more deprived areas of the country. So inequalities in life expectancy have increased since 2010, especially for women. Um, and regional inequalities are really really clear life expectancy is lower in the north higher in the south um this mm. is in england lowest in the northeast and highest in london yeah so in every region people who live in the most affluent 10 percent of neighborhoods have seen increases in life expectancy so generally though that inequality is growing and that's that's a real concern because for all that most people live long lives it's by no means fair or equal how that how that plays out so that's a, that's a problem for social workers, definitely. Definitely, it it really is, and a lot of it, um, in my experience, working in one of those regions, because I work in the northwest, um, and often in the northeast, it's about access to good services in a timely fashion. So if you have a diagnosis of something, getting the help that you need quickly enough. Is there's a real there's a real delay in in all sorts of areas um, across the northeast and the northwest, which I think contributes to this. Yeah, um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention about from the evidence, I suppose, and also from experience, is the way that like end of life and death is viewed culturally mm. uh, in the United Kingdom, um, and that we do have. Uh, every year a, a kind of a campaign called Dying Matters which is about trying to get people to talk about mm. the fact that we will die and to prepare for it and to plan for it because culturally we are we really struggle in this country in most in most kind of um, groups and societies and communities to, to talk about it. Yes and I've been um, doing some work as you know in Australia um, around trying to help people uh, have good conversations about the end of their life and um, plan well for it. And people in Australia are equally reluctant to do this. Uh, being morbid was what my father called it when I tried to get him to have the conversation. But, you know, we know that if we can find a way to take, to talk about death seriously and well in the stage of our life before, when we start to become aware of our own mortality, but we're not yet fighting against it, um, we might have more chance of having the kind of death and legacy we hope for. And the thing that interests me about this is we haven't always been so shy of death. You know, it was once all around us, um, but in the UK and in Australia and in many other places, it's not an everyday occurrence anymore. And I was thinking about this because, of course, my husband and I, we've lost all our parents and yet, even though I was very involved in my mother's palliative care, um, I actually wasn't there for her death. 
and my husband was there for his mother as she died and and that so out of our four parents that was the only one who were actually involved in that passing you know that that death and i do think that there's a bit more of a mystery around around it as well i guess yeah and one of the things that we can do as social workers because we're more used to being around uncomfortable and uncertain and difficult things is is to be people who role model talking about this stuff and asking mm. about it and not just asking about um you know, the possibility of death and, and dying and the preparations for that but also asking about grief and bereavement and loss um mm. because again there's a lot of um evidence and experience that says that we don't do those conversations well afterwards either and people don't have the opportunity to mourn and remember and you know, feel loss um, in ways that that they need to I think that's right and we also we have an expectation of how long people are going to need to talk about someone and actually a friend of mine who lost her daughter so she lost her child um was uh, she was a social worker and she was actually told by her work after about six months that she was making people uncomfortable with her grief and it wasn't that she was excessive in her grief actually it was that she was talking about her daughter yeah and I think we should always be able to I mean I don't do this I don't practice what I preach but I, I would try to I think that we it would be good if we could um think of our families and our networks and our friendship groups and our communities as not just the people who are alive but the people who aren't here anymore yeah uh, because those people are still connected to us and we still remember I, them yeah and we and we and then we should have space for them i thought i think that's exactly right and that's actually one of the things i do like about facebook um because I have friends who have lost people, my friend who's lost her daughter, um, another one of my colleagues has lost her son um, and someone else, their husband, you know, things like that. Pictures come up of them um, that they would, things they were doing years ago and they put them up and it's nice to actually go, wow, that's a lovely memory or, you know, you must miss him or her or, oh, it's so lovely to think of her and to actually respond in that way. And I think that's one of the good things that Facebook can do for us is it can bring important people, make them visible again. Yeah. And on that note, actually, it's quite good for social workers to, as we get to know people, get to know not just the people who are currently in their network, but the people that are connected to them that have died. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of those anniversaries and memories. Well, you used to, didn't you? Um, there used to be all sorts of rituals around the anniversaries of people's death that we don't necessarily. I can remember when I first started in the advertising business when I was about 19 or 20, there was an old man who used to come in every year and give me his um, ad for his memorial for his wife and he'd pay for it with his he had his £5.70 or whatever we used to charge him and that would get placed in every year. You don't see so much of that anymore. No, I mean, we still do it in, in my church, for example. So November is where you remember people who've died. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. um, people put up names and we have a, a service for everyone and everyone's name is read out. But without those kind of more formalised um, kind of 
say religious or spiritual rituals sometimes mm. those things get lost a little bit don't they and that's another thing actually that is worth mentioning is the role of social workers in engaging with people's spirituality um not necessarily that they would have a faith or a religion but that you would want to understand what they think about life and death and um what that those mean to them what their connection are to um to those issues and how they would mm. want to approach those approach death Mm. And some people, I mean, we don't know, do we? you? Never know, you never know until you step through that door yourself how you're going to behave. But um, certainly my experience is that death, dying can be very hard work and and death can be something that is very, very scary and fought against very hard by the person who's experiencing it. Um it's not always, you know, we often see in the movies, don't we, that it's the person who's writing the letters to everyone and putting the good face on and going out the door with grace and all those kinds of things. But some people really tear against the idea of living um, and, and social workers have to be there for the for people who have that terrible fear and their families as well and, and find a way to help the family know how to express themselves in those circumstances yeah yeah certainly what you don't want is pretense i think um but entering into people's reality and helping them to manage and contain mm. it and find ways through yeah is, is is a really really valuable role that social workers can play so i wanted to talk about um what generally is thought of as as useful in in end of life so there was a really big um piece of work done about ambitions for palliative and end-of-life care in the UK mm. uh, a few years back and said that there were six things that are really needed. One is that each person is seen as an individual, so they have different approach and needs and wishes around death, that everyone would get fair access to care, um, so they would get the support they needed based on what they needed, that we would maximise people's comfort and well-being, that we coordinate care, that all staff involved would be prepared to care and that communities would be prepared to help so there's a whole dimension around the community um, being engaged with death and dying and bereavement mm. so it's not just a professionalized formal thing that happens over here but it's part of daily life and when this works it can work really well um, and I've certainly seen two cases of that and one is with my own mother who at 63 died young um, and who definitely was not ready to go. Um, she wanted to live for a lot longer. And um, one of the things that really mattered to my family was the coordination of that end-of-life care and how, you know, having a key person, a key worker to help us understand everything that was happening was quite essential to our family um, because it it kept us feeling as if we had some kind of care and control um, just to have one person because mum at one stage had five different people, five different specialists seeing her. So it was, you know, such a huge thing. Um, and and I think that kind of, you know, being in an environment where everybody is prepared to care and that you feel like you're part of a community, I, I do think personally speaking that those things are very helpful 
And the other thing I would say is having seen a, a, a friend die young too in his 50s, one of the things that was very um, impressive was how the community and in particular um, care in the community helped him go home so that he could spend his last weekend at home. And I thought that that was quite an amazing piece of work that was done as well. Yeah, and there's if you think through the kind of stages um, that would happen at end of life, there's particular things that social workers can support. So the first thing is a discussion about mm. the end of life approaching. And quite often we do know from research people don't talk about it, even if somebody's very frail and elderly. And people are kind of like thinking, well, you know, statistically this person isn't going to live for much longer. It may still not be talked about. Uh, mm. So absolutely, actually building a relationship that enables a discussion to take place and bringing people in who need to be involved in that conversation and referring to other people for more support. So social workers ideally would understand what the services are in their area and particularly what the specific palliative care services are. Mm. Um, then there's a whole kind of assessment, care planning and review phase, which is similar to kind of ordinary social work, but has that additional um dimension of how would you want your end of life to look like how would you like want the very end of life to look what would a good death mean to you what would you want to happen immediately afterwards to to your body to your um possessions to your family how do you want to be remembered mm -hmm. how do you want to be celebrated all those kind of things there's, there's a really strong coordination role um there's also trying to get the right care from the different settings so it can like you say it can become quite disjointed so making sure that the right people are involved and that specialist advice even if you don't need specialist input from palliative care you might need specialist advice mm. um, and then at the very end of life a lot of it is reassurance and information and the emotional and spiritual support um, finding out whether people want to be alone, whether they don't want to be alone, who can be with them, how people can be kept informed, how people can understand what's happening, because it can be quite bewildering, mm. I think, in that phase. Um, and then there's care immediately after death. So what do people need to do um, to manage processes, um, all the legal matters, all the bureaucratic matters, all the all the kind of notifications, all that kind of stuff. And mm. There's some really practical mm. support available around that. Um, yeah. And then, and then the bereavement support. Um, yeah. So there's yeah, a lot. There is. And for me, if I could just do a shout out for funding, um, one of the big things for, for my family was that where we lived, there was nowhere for my mum to be treated. And so we had to move to where she was. And um, that meant that we had to take leave from our work and all those sorts of things. And we also had to find accommodation um, near the hospital and so we actually had a social worker um, putting together a whole package for us so that you know because my father was retired at that time um, and so it, there's sometimes there's really practical things too about funding during during the process and then there's afterwards some people do not have the resources to manage funerals um, and all the costs that's associated with that and so that's particularly an important role for social workers as well to actually help negotiate and navigate those yeah. types of distress and distresses as well. And there's very practical things that social workers can do around getting income. 
because there are mm. benefits, um, certainly in yep. the United Kingdom, associated Absolutely. with extreme illness, same in Australia, and and bereavement. Yep. Um, yeah, and things like sorting out wills, mm. um, sorting out custody, those kind of things, uh, really practical things. But all of that is about helping people to feel that they've completed stuff and feel prepared. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this is obviously, um, you know, there's a need for social workers to have support around the end of life themselves, you know, and and it's it's both a privilege and a hard role to witness the pain and suffering of others because we can only ameliorate it really without actually stopping it. So good social work that build on both warm and empathetic relationships with people means that the loss can be both secondary transfer, but also grief of our own for the person we got to know and value. Um, so social workers need support to remain open to relationship when working in palliative care, disability fields or in hospitals, because you can become a bit like Teflon coated, if that makes sense. You know, you can you can grow a bit of a shell. I know that when I um, when I was working in the disability field, we lost three very young children in kind of about a six month period. And that was very hard for the team. You know, you need really good reflective supervision groups, peer case conversations and really being given permission to mourn without it being seen as unprofessional. I think for me, there's a difference between honestly grieving for the life lost or the pain of others. Um, and then when you kind of over immerse yourself in someone else's life, so you can't function healthily or helpfully, and you need to be able to tell the difference. Um, and there should be access to counselling services for you if you need them. And I think also outside supervision can be really helpful when you're working in this field. And one of the things that really worries me, actually, is when a, a team of people who are exposed a lot um, to to death or dying develop a kind of gallows humour as a way of coping, that they turn everything into the need to have a laugh always. Um, so they can't they feel they can't show that um, vulnerable side of themselves at all. And I think there needs to be a balance in a team that's closely working with dying and death and grief. You know, a finely tuned emotional intelligence that allows for the acceptance of the painful and a need for celebrating your own life and luck. I think um, I learned this when um, one of my first placements was in the child health and development team in Australia. And so it's attached to a hospital and a social worker in a hospital sees a lot of sudden and unexpected death. So, you know, how you talked about it being such a small proportion Sometimes social workers in hospitals or depending on what role they're in, they can see that as an everyday occurrence and they can get distorted about how unsafe everybody around you is. And so you've got to watch that too. Do you have a kind of distortion, a belief that there's more death amongst children or young people or um, young adults than, than, than is actually supported by the evidence? I think ultimately what you've made me think about there is that part of the reason that we think end of life is is difficult is because it's sort of separate from everything else if we're mm. if we were always talking about life and death and if we were always talking about grief and loss and happiness and happiness and mm. you know um, new life and everything um, and we were always talking about um, kind of 
if we were always open to this, if it was part of life, then yes. it would just be a part of social work, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it used to be that that's the whole thing is once upon a time we would have like, you know, so I was um, I was able to go and see my father after he died because it was an accident. And so I hadn't had any preparation. So I wanted to see him. But really, most of us don't actually go and sit with dead bodies, actually, um, or dress them. I put my dad's tie on and it was it was strange. But of course, once upon a time, we would have been washing bodies and in some cultures and religions people do and I think you're right we've the whole of life is something that we need to be able to talk well about and help people talk well about yeah and, and be and with remember. people for and yeah, yeah offer that yeah. practical and emotional support the social workers can yeah and I think so for me there's some reflective questions that I started thinking about and the first one was well how comfortable am I myself with death and then what kind of behaviours do I think would comfort me if I was dying? And um, I know my mum will forgive me for this little story, but uh, I couldn't get to her bedside when she was actually dying. And the people who could get to her bedside were people who loved her, but perhaps weren't her favourite people. And so she actually, my brother rung me from her bedside to tell me that she was she was going Um and I said, well, what's happening? Where is she? And he said, oh, she's in, um, she's in there, you know, like, and um, Sandy's holding her hand and Auntie Janet's singing on the piano. <laughs> and I went, and I went, now I know she's dying. Like, because <laughs> she never would have put up with that in life, you know. <laughs> and so sometimes we can end up in a place where, we, where there wasn't what we imagined. So, you know, what kind of behaviours do you think would comfort you if you were dying? Because what was happening for my mum was behaviours that were comforting the people who were watching her die. Um, what kind of behaviours do I think would comfort me if I was grieving? Can I have an open – have I had an open conversation with significant people in my life about how I want the end of my life to be or about how others want the end of their life to be? And then lastly, what kind of support have I sought in the past when I've experienced death as a professional? Those are really good questions. Yeah. And both – I mean, this is, podcast has ended up being about social work as, as, as a professional activity but also about um, – all of us as, as as human beings what is our approach to this and how can we personally prepare and um support ourselves with this work and with you know with this reality because i think the thing is jerry that that because social work is such a relational job and because this is this is the sticky end this is you know one of the one of the big ones that you've got to be there for and you have to be you have to be open to relationship at this time because you've got to be able to open your arms when other people fall into them. You've got to be able to sit with outpourings of grief and not try to stop people or cut them off or anything like that. And all of that stuff means you've got to know about it yourself, haven't you? You've got to at least have formed some kind of view and understanding of it. 